0: Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. All right, turn to Luke chapter 19. Um, So we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. One of the main things that I want to leave you with is that you should take God more seriously than you do and yourself less seriously. So lo and behold, during His mercy is more, my wife, she's like, I mean, this is 20 minutes ago. She's like, hey, come here. I think your shirt's on backwards. (laughs) So I've been walking around the whole morning, last four hours with my shirt on backwards. Thank you to all of the eight people who didn't tell me. (laughs) Single men get married. Um, (laughs) That would not have been corrected if I didn't have Sarah. All right, so we're going to be in Luke 19. The point there is, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this eventually once we take a look at the Pharisees in this little passage. We'll be in verses 28 through 40. People who obsess about themselves are miserable. We'll get there and you'll see that, but I want to, I want to bring our eyes towards Christ. I can't lift him up high enough today. We're going to try through the preaching of his word, but he should be exalted in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. Amen? Amen. All right. Beginning in verse 28, Luke 19:28. Has need of it. So those who were sent away went. And they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, look at verse 32 there and notice something with me. This entry into Jerusalem, just like everything else in Jesus' life that saves us, that procured the salvation of the world, all of it was ordained, predestined, governed, orchestrated by the God of Jesus Christ. 32 says, and they found it just as he had told them. That guy, when he tied up that colt that morning, he was doing an errand, like a task, a box he checks every day, take out the trash, put on my sandals, tie up the colt, swing by Whole Foods, get a loaf of unleavened bread for Passover, right? It was just a chore. He had no idea at the time that he was fulfilling something from Zechariah 9.9 that he would have heard read to him since he was a little boy, that his colt that he tied up that morning was going to be Bible, Old and New Testament. If you'd have told him as much, he'd have looked at you the way I would if you told me that my black lab was going to be the treasury secretary someday. My my colt that I tied up? Yes. And if you'd have asked him before telling him that, why did you do that? His answer wouldn't have been a lie, but it would have been wrong. He would have said, because I tied it up. But Luke tells us the colt was tied up because Jesus said it would be that way. Jesus said it would be so. This guy had no idea what role his colt and his tying it up was playing. And that's the way it is for most of us all the time. So 1981 or 82, there were some sweet Pentecostals in Over the Rhine. Back before Over the Rhine was hipster paradise. And it was a bad place and you did not want to be there. My morphine addict father was down there shooting dope. And some sweet Pentecostals from a storefront church started witnessing to him and taking him to lunch at a little place called Tucker's on Vine Street. And they had no idea. And if you'd have told them that someday that guy was going to end up being a pastor with five grown Christian children and a Christian wife of 40 years and counting, they would have been surprised. On January 6th, 1850, I read this story earlier this week, uh, a Methodist pastor at a little church of about 15 people, he got snowed in and he couldn't make it to preach that night. So a layman filled in and he preaches this sermon and there's this depressed 15-year-old sitting in the audience and he hones in on that kid and he points at him and he says, young man, you look miserable and you will be miserable unless you obey my text and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that little kid, that 15-year-old teenager turned out to be Charles Spurgeon, the most influential preacher since Martin Luther. We, we stand here on God's earth on a Monday morning, tying up our colts, putting on our cloaks, and we act like we know what's really happening. What what is occurring around us and inside of us, what it really means. And we almost never do. We have no idea what God is weaving together in this grand story about his son because we're not the author of this story. There was, a, this was maybe eight, eight, nine years ago. I don't think Elliot's here, but Elliot was a part of, a Elliot Haynes was a part of a church plan I was in. Franklin, you knew this guy. Dan, Dan Bauer. There was this, uh, I was trying to plant a church. We met in a little, um, a little strip mall and there was a guy who worked at this La Rosa's that I managed who was a Marine, and he had come back, and he started, doing, he started doing, I think, coke when he was over there in Fallujah. He came back. He was still messing around with drugs, getting drunk, and he got a young lady pregnant. So I had talked to this guy at work a number of times. He was a cook. I was the manager. And one day, uh, I was driving to see my dad, and I was thinking about my dad, and so I was scrolling through my phone, and I, I meant to click in my contacts, D-A-D, and I clicked D-A-N instead. And Dan answered. And I hadn't realized that's what I did. So I was like, I tried to cover for it, you know, and just be like, oh, uh, hey, Dan, how you doing, man? And it's like, I'm okay. And I didn't I even remember what I said to make it seem like I had intended to call him. But the call lasted for like two or three minutes, and that was the end of it. Well, Dan then started coming to the church plant. Something about that interaction he took, I think, as some sort of like Go go to Wade's church. And long story short, the guy ended up coming back to the Lord, and he has been a member in good standing. I think he's basically a deacon up at Allison Avenue Church in Westchester. I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. I'm doing it anyway, so get angry if you want, Dan. Um, and his, the, the woman he, who he'd gotten pregnant, who was not a Christian, she became a Christian the day that she gave birth to that boy, that little boy. Uh, and they've been together ever since, and they've now got two kids, and they're married, and uh, they're a good Christian household because I dialed the wrong number, (laughs) right? So we act like we think we know what's happening, and we almost never do because God is actually in control. He is actually the author of your biography, not you. The apostles later could look back on all the events of their own lives Christ living, Christ dying, Christ being resurrected, and they could know that all of it had been preordained by the God of Jesus Christ. What's the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 2.10? That even his and my and your good works were prepared beforehand by God. Peter could write in 1 Peter 2.8 that all of those, like these Pharisees, who tripped over the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, they were what? Destined to do so. In Acts 4, 23 through 28, all the disciples are gathered together and they say, Lord, we know that the Gentiles and Pilate and the people of Israel and Herod, they did what your hand had predestined to take place. Acts 4, 23 through 28. God is actually the author of this grand drama that we find ourselves in. Even here, two verses below my text, in verse 42, Jesus says that the things that make for peace have been hidden from Jerusalem's eyes. Hidden by whom? By the one that Romans 9, 15 through 18 says, has mercy on whom he'll have mercy and harden whom he'll harden. God is the author of history and the conductor of history and the composer of history. By the way, this is one of the great things. I'll throw in a pitch for home education here. This wasn't in my text, but sometimes you feel the Lord move and you just do it. So you don't have to homeschool your kids. It's not the only way to do it, but I do enjoy this part. When I teach history to my kids... When we get to like Nebuchadnezzar or Xerxes, Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, I can tell them, hey, the Bible says that this guy actually was a character in a story about Yahweh and that God decided everything that would happen to him. Here's Xerxes, right? He's in the movie 300 that I've never seen, but he's a character in that movie. He's this famous king. And the the book of Esther says that God decided what he would dream about one night so that Mordecai and Esther could save the Jews. God's in control of history. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful truth. All right, and Jesus did all of this. He composed this event. He had that cult be tied up to compose a worship service. Look at verses 39 through 40. Some of the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. In other words, Christ will be glorified, whether anybody out there wants him to or not. He will be. Right, water finds its level, plants grow towards the sunlight, and Jesus Christ will be glorified by creation. If you try to break that law that God has hardwired into the world, you will end up broken in pieces yourself. That's in the next chapter, verses 17 through 18. You will be broken in pieces yourself if you try to thwart what God is doing in creation, which is telling a story about his son someday, some version of what they sing in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That will be what we're all crying out. Every Christian in this room will be singing that. It'll be the never-ending, ever-more-beautiful, always-deeper song of every human being that's been adopted into God's family. Glorifying God is the reason you exist. Glorifying God is the reason your heart is beating right now. It's the reason your car will start tomorrow. It's the reason why your firstborn was born. It's the reason why you're losing your hair. It's the reason why everything that happens happens because God is the author of this story and he is the main character. Uh, First question of the Westminster Catechism. We do this at my house, right? Um... What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. And we glorify him by, John Piper does a good job of pointing this out, enjoying him forever. Which is a course correction for all of us sons and daughters of the 21st century. Is it? Isn't it? We are a very narcissistic generation. We dwell on ourselves far too much and we dwell on God far too little. I'm not arguing for cathedrals and stained glass windows and steeples again. But I do think it's worth noting that in American Christianity over the last hundred years or so, as we began to take the worship of God less seriously, we began to take ourselves much more seriously. Has anybody else noticed that? Most of us spend more time curating our social media profiles or our resumes or our careers than we do our worship or our holiness. We take ourselves more seriously than than we do God. And now, in Christianity, as it exists currently in America, this has been my observation, and I think I could defend it with just anecdotal evidence and stories, but I think it's probably going to be true for most of you, too. You can see that we basically want God to exist for us. I'm not telling you to boycott K-Love, but we listen to K-Love a lot. Anybody else listen to K-Love? All right, so we listen to it. It's great. Some of the songs are great. But Sarah and I have had this conversation in the van a number of times. I can't help but notice almost all of the songs and almost all of the banter are about what God does for us, and almost none of it is about how intrinsically holy or beautiful he is in and of himself, if none of us ever existed. That ratio is off, right? It makes it seem as though God is a product that we are all really satisfied with. And so now we'll go out into the world and we'll tell people about all the great things this product has done for us. That is not the message of Scripture, right? The angels are not in heaven just talking about how glad they are that God gave them wings. They're singing in delight about how God is beautiful and holy in and of himself. Jesus did not enter Jerusalem merely to be my heavenly therapist or my heavenly life coach. He is a king. He is a king. And I was made to be his loyal, delighted, obedient, overjoyed subject. And so were you. So were you. If your lived Christianity amounts to you inserting Jesus into your problems so that you feel better and then going back to whatever you were doing before, you are not living or thinking like you will in heaven or on the new earth. you hear me? I have done this. I have fallen into the trap of basically believing that Jesus exists to smooth over my anxieties. Now, he will make me less anxious. Amen? But he doesn't exist to do that. And as I take my eyes off of myself and fix them on him, Suddenly, a miraculous thing begins to happen. I start becoming less anxious or bitter or angry. My lusts start to die because I'm doing what I was made to do, which is to glorify him and be satisfied in him and worship him. Jesus would still be just as good if God had never made me. And that should make me happy. He made me. He didn't have to. He chose to. He made me and he saved me. When I think about that, when I dwell in that, my life does become more godly, and I do become more peaceful. Do you know how many things in creation were made to navel gaze, to incessantly look ever inward? This is why I hate personality tests, okay? You can take the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. (laughs) There's nothing intrinsically wrong about them, okay? But walk with me for a second. Haven't you noticed that we do this a lot that we are constantly trying to put ourselves in these boxes and think about ourselves. I do this because I'm an extrovert, but she does that because she's an introvert, and I do this because I'm an EFNJ, but she does this because she's a, whatever the other acronyms are, I don't even remember. I'm a four, he's a six. That's why we are the way we are, we make it work. Like, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of that. However, however, we do this way more than Christians who are suffering in the third world, guys. We are obsessed with ourselves. I am obsessed with myself. And it's not what we were made to do. Most of us know these personality tests more than we know God's word. That's a problem. It's a problem. You were not made to incessantly think about yourself. And your brain wasn't made to help you do it. Your heart was not made to palpitate and skip beats over anxiety about your bills. Your hands weren't made to ball up into fists because you're thinking about some shade somebody threw your way at the office the other day. Your tongue wasn't made to gossip or to talk endlessly about yourself. But this is what we do. And if you can repent of it, if you can orbit your life around the glory of Jesus Christ, you'll be holier and you'll be happier. I've seen it. I know it because Scripture tells me. Your first day in heaven, your first day of being truly self-forgetful will be the happiest day you've ever had. Some of us need a day of being self-forgetful. I actually did this Thursday or Friday. I stayed off social media for basically the whole day. Michael and I sat out on the porch, I remember, and we were talking about other people and other things, smoking our pipes. It was, it's not tobacco. I ordered like this non-tobacco pipe smoke and we sat out there. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I wanted wanted my wife to feel a little less anxious about me smoking tobacco, so I bought this stuff. Tastes like soap. (laughs) We sat out there and we just talked about God and other people. And I hadn't looked at Twitter or Facebook all day and I'd barely looked at text messages. And it was just so refreshing, that little stretch of time where I had let my mind and my heart just saturate on God. I'd worked on the sermon and I thought and prayed for some people who had some things going on that day, and it was just so healthy. Your first day in heaven will be like that, even better. You will be exactly what you were made to be, which is a worshiper, a delighted worshiper of Jesus Christ. The nurses in your delivery room that you were born in, they could tell me how long you were, how much you weighed, whether your reflexes were working properly. But unless they were Christians, not one of them could tell me why you were there. But the Bible can Romans eleven thirty six, 36. To him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You were made for him. You were made for him. The woman who kisses Jesus' feet in Luke 7, the blind man in John 9, Zacchaeus in this chapter, Luke 19. These people in the scriptures who are overcome with worship and delight in Jesus Christ, they are living what they were made to be in those moments. This is why in the story of Mary and Martha, Right? Martha's in there cooking and doing all the things that she needs to do to make the dinner party happen or whatever, none of which is wrong. But then she gets bitter about Mary. Can't you send her in to help me bake the scones, Jesus? Right? And Jesus says she's chosen the better portion, which doesn't mean don't ever wash dishes. But it does mean that Mary is doing what she was made to do. And some of you have already had experiences like this. I know it. I've had a handful myself, We're either through a season of grief, a lot of times that's when it happens, through a season of intense pain, you have forgotten all about your own reputation and station, and whether or not you're going to get the promotion that you wanted, or whether or not people think about you as a mom the way you want, or whether or not you're going to get the raise that you intended to get, or any of that stuff, and you just think about how good God is. Don't you want that back if you've had that moment? We lost a baby about six, seven years ago, and that was that season for both Sarah and I. It was intensely painful. But it was also the most God-oriented moment of my life when I was just keenly aware of God being sufficient for me and of Him being the reason I was made and the reason why my baby who had died that we buried was made. And it was hard And it was also wonderful. But the Pharisees are not like that. Look at the Pharisees. So the Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. All of the people in the Bible who are obsessed with themselves are the most miserable, insufferable people you can imagine. Two examples, real quick. Two kings. You guys watched King Charles get coronated yesterday, right? You know how great it would be to be king and yet there are two kings in the Bible who were constantly thinking about themselves and who were miserable for it. Saul, King Saul, right? David kills Goliath, which Saul was not able to do. It's a great day for God's people. The pagan Philistines have been defeated. This giant Nephilim of a man. I tip my cards there. I think Goliath was, Goliath was a Nephilim. His head is cut off by this 15-year-old boy. This is great, like we won, right? Except that's not how Saul reacts. How does he react? They they're all singing David's praises. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous. He gets envious. And the rest of his life is like that. He is constantly thinking about what David's success means for him. He's constantly thinking about what David's victories mean about him what they imply for his future, and he's miserable. Another one is King Ahab, the most pathetic man in the Bible. He's married to Jezebel, a pagan. He brings her into Israel. She kills the priests of Yahweh. And then Ahab wants this vineyard next to his house. And Naboth, the man, won't sell it to him. So he curls up in the fetal position on his bed and sucks his thumbs and cries. And Jezebel, his wife, comes in and says, don't worry, honey, I'll take care of it. And she goes out and has Naboth murdered. And then gives the field to her husband. Ahab's whole life is like that. He's constantly obsessed with himself. It makes a man miserable. It makes a man miserable. I know it from experience. I know it from Scripture. And some of you are trying. Hear me. You need to hear me. Some of you are trying to make your finances or your families your jobs, your education, a character in a story about you. And you will be miserable. And I don't want it for you as your brother in Christ. You will be miserable. And you will make the people around you miserable. Do you know what I was doing when I called Dan that day on accident? I was miring in self-pity. I do this a lot, and it's wicked and selfish and small, and I need to crucify it. And that's what I was doing around that time. I was thinking things along the lines of, I'm a failure. I'm going to die in obscurity. I'm the manager of a little pizza place. No one's going to remember me. My kids aren't going to be proud of me. And I remember thinking, Michael, I had met you at this point. Here's this guy who I met whose church is already big, and he's taller than me. Can you not throw me a bone? God, in other words, I was the subject in all my own internal sentences. When in the real world, outside my head, God was the subject of all the sentences, and he was using me to bless this guy who had come home from the war a wreck. But I didn't care at that moment because of my self-pity. I don't want that for you. I don't want it for you. When, uh, basically, at that moment, I was like the disciples when they were arguing over which is the greatest. Do you remember that? Has anybody else ever read the Gospels and think, how do these guys who are walking with Jesus and who wrote Bible still argue over who's the greatest? They do, which means you and I are gonna do it, internally or externally, with our mouths or with our minds. When Jesus says after that, that um, the first will be last and the last will be first, his point is not that God is some kind of Marxist. Okay? His point, among others, is that the kind of person who doesn't feel like he needs to elbow his way to the front of this world's table is the kind of person who really is first in the eyes of the kingdom. Because that's how it will be in heaven. We won't feel the need to shove our way to the front of the table or the center of the story. We will crave God's glory the way we were always made to. You were given money or children or a job or a car or an education or a colt or a cloak. You were given them. Suffering. You were given the suffering you have, the pain you have, the problems you have, the financial hardships you have. You were given all of it to play a part in a story about Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, the two disciples on their way back are um, their way to Emmaus and then they'll return. Jesus explains to them, they don't know it's him yet, but they, he explains to them that the entire Old Testament was about him. And do you remember what it says happened to them? Their hearts burned within their chests when they realized that the entire 39-book Old Testament that they had been taught since they were little boys was about Jesus. 39 books... 3,000 years of history, hundreds of life stories, the stories of empires rising and falling, and all of it was about Jesus and their hearts, when they realized that, burned within their chests because deep, deep, deep down, we know we're not supposed to be the center of the universe. Deep down, we know we were made to glorify God. So how narcissistic and stupid do I have to be to think that my little 80-year story here in Cincinnati, Ohio is about me? If the entire Old Testament, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, Alexander the Great, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, if all of that was about Jesus Christ, do I really think that my career is a story about me? It's not. Your life is not a story about you. That cult was born to play a part in a story about Christ. Those cloaks were first knit together and were on those disciples to glorify Jesus Christ. Every set of teeth and every tongue that was singing God's praises on that path down the Mount of Olives was made to glorify Christ. Pilate's wife is going to have a dream in a few days after this, a nightmare sort of. It's going to be to glorify Christ. Saturn has rings to glorify Christ. My shirt was on backwards to glorify Christ. Hydrogen has one electron to glorify Christ. All of creation exists to magnify and exalt Jesus Christ, which accounts for the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees say, rebuke his disciples, and he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. An implication of that means everything, everything was made to sing my praises. So the choice before you and me is whether we're going to live for what we were made to live for or whether we're going to die trying to deny it. So I'm going to close with three ways this can play out. I didn't write any of this. I'm just going to ad-lib it because I love you. So I thought of three different kinds of people as I was praying yesterday, Thursday, whatever. First is the guy who's got a job right now. So if you're a man working a job right now, I used to sit in a cubicle. For eight years, I sat at Nunder Mifflin. Actually, I stood because I had a standing desk. But I stood at Dunder Mifflin, and I tried to look at Excel spreadsheets and think that my life mattered and do it to the best of my ability. And there were countless days, countless, that I thought, this is pointless. I'm doing work that anybody could do. A monkey could do it. If I died, they would replace me in two seconds. My kids have no idea what I do. My son tries to explain it at his homeschool co-op, and he can't. What is is the point? That's a sinful, foolish, self-centered way of thinking about your vocation. Instead, when you make your tent, which is what Paul did for a living, when you type your little keys on your Excel spreadsheet, when you build houses or what engineers do, when you build engines, whatever it is you do, all my med school guys, where are they? They're back there. When, you, when you're doing surgery, when you're in residency, guys, when you're working that career, you are doing it because God has given you that vocation to glorify him. I didn't know it at the time, but there was a guy, a software sales rep at that company who thought about his job the same way I did. He told me once, uh, he went to his son's like school and it was tell your class about what your dad or mom does for a living day. And he said, my dad sells silverware instead of software. And he's like, wait, I didn't even, he's like, wait, I didn't even, I didn't even correct him. (laughs) So to this day, he thinks I sell silverware. So he felt about like I did. This guy was an unbeliever. And one time when we got lunch, talking shop, talking about the work, Jesus came up and he's a Christian now. I don't, Feel comfortable saying, I led him to the Lord, but I think God used my voice primarily to get him to the cross. If that whole eight years was just for that, and that guy, and his wife, and his two children, what do you think? Was it worth it? All right, the mom. The mom who's focusing on children who I know can be exhausting. I change diapers, too. I clean up messes, too. My wife changes 10 times, as more, 10 times as many as I do. So I know how exhausting it can be. And I also know, she's told me, there are days where you feel like you're accomplishing nothing. I just cleaned that up 10 seconds ago. How is it dirtier than before I cleaned it up? I know. But you are leaving eternal marks on souls that will glorify God forever. The work that you are doing in human beings matters. Every one of your children comes out of your womb or that you adopt. Every single one that God gives you is unregenerate at the beginning. And he chooses to use you, mom, to shape and shepherd and change that little boy or little girl's heart. He uses you. You are his instrument. Nothing that you do is irrelevant. Orient your heart around the glory of God and understand that. And the student is the third one. If you're in school right now and you have our finals over, finals already happened. okay. The next semester when you start and you feel like this class is stupid, I'm never going to use any of this. You might be right, but God put you in that classroom for his purposes, not yours. There's a lot of classes that I took that were stupid, that I've never thought about ever again. I kept all my textbooks thinking, I'm going to, you know, go back and read that someday. Never read a single one. <laughs> Never opened them back up. And yet God used that time. That was his providence that put me in that classroom. I want you to orient your lives around the God of Jesus Christ and little kids. We've got a few in here, right? If you want someday, are mine back there. Hey, Ellie. Hi. you want to be a mom someday, you want to invent something someday, you want to build a household someday, great, awesome. You're not going to be the hero of the story, right? Let's tell them together. Who is the hero of the story? We know the answer is Jesus. Who is the hero of the story? Jesus. He is the hero of this grand story that we're all in. Orbit your life around him. Pray with me, please. God, your word tells us that the reason that we exist is for your good pleasure in glorifying your son. Everything was made for him. Everything was knit together and composed and conducted and orchestrated and animated for him. We were handcrafted in our mother's wombs to glorify Him. So today when we leave here, help us to crucify any desire, any sinful, overbearing desire to get attention or accolades from the world, from our peers, from our neighbors, as though that is going to be a worthwhile life purpose. It's not. Right now, help every Christian in this room to feel, to think, to know that we were made to magnify Jesus. And if there are any unbelievers who are gathered with us here today, Lord, anybody who has not yet truly trusted in Jesus Christ, I plead with you. I ask you in the name of your son Jesus to grant repentance and faith to that man or woman to those men or women who do not yet know him. You love to save bad people. It's a part of what you're doing in Jesus Christ and will do until he comes back. We ask all these things in his name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.